Good morning, everyone. We are going to get started because we have a lot to cover today. And actually, uh, I don't think uh, we'll be able to cover it all. So whatever we don't get to today, we'll continue next week. Uh, but uh, the very first thing is let me introduce myself. My name is Taylor Hall. I serve here as one of the pastors. Um, and we're doing a three-week series on the Bible, theology, and LGBTQ plus community. Um, last week, we covered... Uh, uh, the intro and why we should care. And what we specifically went over, we went over a lot of statistics as to why, um, why members of the LGBTQ community in many ways are still oppressed, uh, why there is a perception from the LGBTQ community that the Christian community is not friendly and welcoming, that they're perceived as uh, judgmental and hypocritical. Um, and then we started really focusing on the big picture. What do we believe that the Bible says and that was all rooted in love. We believe that the Bible guides us to love God and to love our neighbor. But we also briefly talked about that there are several passages in the Bible um, that might be perceived to speak against the LGBTQ community. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today, is we're going to go through those, uh, those specifically the five passages that mention any kind of um, homosexuality, uh, and we're going to try to get much deeper into it. Here's the truth, though. So each of those passages, we could spend weeks covering them, and I'm trying to fit it all within 45 minutes. So we're going to go very quick. Um, however, after each passage, I will stop and open it up for questions. Like I said, we're going to go through as much as we can today, and whatever we don't get to today, uh, we're going to focus on next week. So again, we're going to be specifically exploring the Old and New Testament passages uh, that lift up in some way, um, although I wouldn't ever say explicitly, but in some way uh, lift up the uh, LGBTQ plus community. Before we do that, I do want to uh, add two more words to our glossary. We went over a pretty extensive list of terms last week, uh, but one of the things that we talked about that I never defined during the glossary is the term non-binary. Uh, we talked about intersex, and again, if you remember from last week, intersex are people who are born with both male and female sex organs. Um, but we also kind of talked about another uh, a gender identity term, which is non-binary, but I never defined it for you. Uh, so that's what I'm going to do now. Non-binary is an adjective describing a person who does not identify exclusively as a man or a woman. Non-binary people may identify as being both man and a woman, somewhere in between, or falling completely outside of these categories. And while many also identify as transgender, not all non-binary people do. And so again, there was a question last week on how do we correctly use they, them pronouns. A lot of people who identify as non-binary, not everyone, but a lot of them use that as their pronoun choice. Um, so they, them, is anyone who falls outside of the male-female sex binary um, and identify either as both, uh, somewhere in between, or sometimes even neither. Again, gender expression and gender identity is all internal. It's how we feel about ourselves and how we want the outside world uh, to identify us as. So again, non-binary is a very common term as part of the LGBTQ community. The other glossary term that I'm going to add today is living word, because this is what we believe about scripture. We believe that the Bible is the living word of God, and that's obviously what we're talking about today. How is the Bible the living word? And so the living word is a term used to convey the belief that God continues to speak to us through scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this revelation of the word has marked points in history, creation, covenant, Christ, church, and canon, but it has not ceased. So again, we do believe that the Bible still speaks to us uh, through the word of God, um, through the living word, uh, but not, not just because of what was written all those years ago, but even what was written all those years ago, how it is still God speaking to us now. Um, in a changing world and in a changing environment, a changing culture, God is still speaking this to us through those scriptures of old. Uh, so we're going to cover that. Now, before we go into the Old and New Testament passages, we need a very brief understanding of the Bible. Now, it was really nice if you were here now, I think it was three Sundays ago, uh, Pastor Carter preached a sermon that said, why do we believe in the Bible when there are such disturbing passages? And as part of that sermon, he went over the explanation of what we as Reformed 
uh, Christians, as Presbyterians, what we believe about the Bible. And so we're going to kind of continue that frame that Carter had set for us a few weeks ago, and we're going to talk about it here, but again, very briefly, uh, so we can actually get to these Old and New Testament passages. So the very first thing you should know that the Bible is not just one book. It is, in fact, 66 books, sermons, letters, poems, songs, proverbs, histories, and it's selected by humankind. Over uh, throughout uh, decades and then eventually centuries, uh, people decided which, uh, which letters, stories, songs would all be included in the Bible. Uh, they were all written by humans, um, and specifically they were written most likely by men, um, but none of them were actually given to us by God. It wasn't something that was handed down to us. For example, in the Mormon church, they actually believe that Joseph Smith was given the plates by God. We don't believe that about any of our books in the Bible. None of them were handed directly to us, but rather it was humankind responding to God at work, and they wrote down the stories. And so that's the very first thing. It was composed over um, a thousand years, uh, is how long it took for us to finally put the Bible together. And of course, you know that the Bible actually covers a time even longer than that. So the Bible being put together took a thousand years, but it covers the stories of thousands and thousands of years, all the way from the beginning of time with the creation and then to the early church that Carter also referenced in his sermon for today. It is authored and edited by hundreds of individuals, and that continues to happen today. Every time there's a new translation of the Bible, that continues to be an edited version of the original uh, transcripts. It was written in at least three different languages, all of which are actually considered dead languages today. Yes, Hebrew and Greek are still languages, but the, the version that they were written in was ancient Hebrew, and it was Koine Greek, and then also Aramaic. So again, all of the language that were originally written in are languages that are not spoken today. Rather, it's something that we still um, are able to read just through very, very ancient transcripts. Um, and then it's been preserved and transmitted by handwritten copies, thousands, many of which were altered by the copyists. So again, people had their own agendas, they had their own biases, and every time they had a new translation of the Bible, it would often fit the culture of that time. And specifically, this was true much before the Reformation, uh, which is part of the reason why the Reformation eventually happened, is people said the Bible had been altered too much, we need to go back to the original scriptures, which is what the reformers did. Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, just to name a few. So what is the Bible? And this comes directly from the Bible. It comes from 2 Timothy. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And once again, this was actually the scripture text that Carter used in that sermon that I talked about a few weeks ago. So scripture is inspired. But there's also understanding of scripture that people have used in the church that scripture doesn't say about itself. So what you should know is scripture says that it's inspired by God, but here are the things that it says it's not. One is that it's not inerrant or infallible. It's not universally binding. It's exempt from, it's not exempt from interpretation and that it's not internally consistent. And so this is not what we believe about the Bible, which other Christian churches might. Um, and I'm going to explain each of those, what those might look like. So the very first thing is the Bible is not inerrant. That means the Bible is not without error. There are plenty of mistakes that are found within the Bible that the authors themselves got wrong. For example, Mark gets his ancient Palestinian geography wrong at at least a few occasions. So you can actually look at the maps that Mark was explaining, and they are not accurate to actually what the Middle East looks like, even during that time. So there are plenty of mistakes found within the Bible. The second thing, it's not universally binding, which means that everything that was written in the Bible was not applied to all Christians. Uh, specifically, there was a lot of Jewish laws that were never um, binding for the non-Jews. Uh, so this, especially with Paul, is when he was expanding beyond just that the Jewish people were God's chosen people, there were so many Jewish laws that were no longer binding to the expanding word or the expanding uh, audiences that the Bible was then for. It's not exempt from interpretation, uh, which means that 
we aren't actually supposed to interpret it um, for ourselves. Uh, this was true through when the Bible was being written. This was true for the New Testament when it was being written, inspired by the Old Testament. A lot of it was interpreted by the scriptures of the, of the Old Testament. And then even today, when we believe that it's the living word, all of us continue to interpret the Bible for ourselves. A preaching is actually the word of God. When one of the pastors gets up there to preach the sermon, that is also the word of God. And it's because it's the interpretation of the word of God. Now, here's the thing is also in the Presbyterian church, pastors aren't the only ones who have the gift to interpret scripture. All of us have been given that gift. So even when we read stories, when we think about them through our own experiences, um, that also means that we're interpreting the word and that is also how it is the living word. And then the last thing, it's not always internally consistent. So again, going back to that, there are mistakes within the Bible, um, but that there are some parts where it will say this and another part where it might say that, and they are completely different. Um, for example, Jesus's genealogy is different to Matthew and Luke, as well as, as you know, in the very beginning, there are two creation stories um, and they're different than one another, Genesis one and Genesis two. Any questions about um, all about the Bible so far? Again, I think that makes for the most sense. So the very first thing is, well, one of the things is we don't worship the Bible. The Bible is a sacred object that we uh, turn to, to use it as a lens to uh, grow in relationship with God and then also to uh, help us navigate in the world around us. But it's not an object of our worship. Um, and so the Bible is not God. Uh, and it is uh, rather it's a trustworthy companion or a tool that we use in our pursuit to be in relationship with God. And like any text, the Bible does require very thoughtful interpretation to serve its purpose for our life and faith. Um, and the thing is, if you really do want to take the Bible seriously, if you want it to be a part of your life, it is important um, that you actually sit down with it, that you understand the context as well as the interpretation moving forward, that you do take it seriously, not by just reading it at face value, but really spending time with it. Uh, spending time with God, spending time with Christ and with the Spirit, that is how the Bible uh, becomes serious and becomes real and alive in our lives. When we interpret Scripture, there are uh, eight rules that I think as Reformed Presbyterians that we really follow, and these are how we take the Bible seriously. One is Scripture is to be interpreted with confidence and openness to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When we let the Spirit speak to us, we let the Bible speak to us. Um, the scripture principle, scripture is to be interpreted in light of scripture, comparing scripture with scripture, with openness to hear the whole word of God, not just selected parts of it. This means it is not right to just pick a verse and say that verse is the word of God, but rather the Bible as a whole, the inspired word as it comes together is the word of God. The Christological principle, which means that scripture is to be interpreted in light of God's central self-revelation in Jesus. We briefly talked about this last week, which means that scripture, everything should be centered around Christ. And actually everything should be uh, through the lens of Christ. When you read scripture, it should be all about what uh, Christ taught us, uh, found in his life, death, and resurrection. There's also the rule of love, which we also talked about last week, which means that scripture is to be interpreted in the light of the one commandment of God that summarizes all the other commandments. Love God and love your neighbors. As always, you should interpret scripture through the lens of love. There is the rule of faith, which means that scripture is to be interpreted with respect for the church's past and present interpretation of scripture. Um, again, this is something that we the, as the Presbyterians do, is we honor our church history, but we, we actually lift it up as something that is very relevant still today, but we are also moving forward, too. We respect our history, we see where the church comes from, and we're also not stuck in our history either. Um, scripture is to be interpreted in light of the literary forms and historical context to which it was written, uh, which means that you have to understand the history and the culture of its people. Um, and scripture is to be interpreted seeking the word and work of the living God in our time and place. So again, understanding that scripture was written um, and the Bible was formed over 2,000 years ago, um, but now it's supposed to be interpreted to modern times of today. And then the very last thing is scripture is to be interpreted with an awareness of our limitations and fallibility and with the openness to change our mind and correct it. Reformed means always being 
performed afresh by the word of God. So the moment that we think we know everything there is to know about the word of God is the moment that we have lost touch with the word of God. Um, you are supposed to always be open to scripture speaking to you in new ways um, because it, it does in fact do that. Any questions on those reformed rules? Jen? I just have a question comment. I don't know about the Christological principle. I've seen a pastor this week saying, within the Bible, and I haven't been able to check to see if this is true, it never actually says that the text of the Bible is the Word of God. It says that Christ is the Word of God. It says, you know, the Word was flesh and the Word lived amongst us. And so that's a, an interesting concept that sometimes elevate the Bible itself, this is the word of God, but the Bible itself doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. So one of the, I'll also highlight one thing is, I always say that there are at least three creation stories in the Bible, so you have Genesis 1, you have Genesis 2, and then you also have John 1. Um, John 1 is where you actually hear uh, the word was made flesh, so that is God becoming um, Jesus uh, in the incarnation. Um, but again, we as Presbyterians, we do believe in the living word, which means that we do turn to scripture, uh, not as an object of our worship, but rather it is the way that God still speaks to us. And if you interpret it through the lens of Christ, it's also how Christ speaks to us. So obviously, when we think about the word of God, that is God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, that is all the word. Um, but then scripture becomes the living word is when we interpret it through those lens, through the lens of God, Christ, and the spirit. Yes? The reformed uh, rules is for the reformed church. So our church, maybe Methodist, and yes. not so much Catholic, evangelical. Um, so be clear on when I'm talking about reformed, I'm talking about what a lot of us would consider non-evangelical Protestant churches of today. So that would include, obviously, Presbyterians, as you said, Methodists, the Lutherans, the United Church of Christ. Um, anyone who follows, uh, came out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, taking place first in the 16th century, starting with Martin Luther, John Calvin, Frederick Schleiermacher. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other reformers. Um, so whenever I talk about Reformed theology today, I'm talking anyone who falls under the non-evangelical Protestant church movement today. Um, there are some who would consider themselves like um, uh, a lot of charismatic or Pentecostal churches would consider themselves Reformed, but I'm not using them in that context. So again, I think that's a really good question. I'm talking about all non-evangelical Protestant churches. Um, and a lot of these churches are the ones that we're in full communion with. So again, what that means is... Um, we see ourselves as so close in our beliefs is that we, we totally embrace each other. So again, we're in full communion with the Lutheran, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA Church, the United Church of Christ, the Reformed Church of America. Um, there's two others, uh, the Korean Presbyterian Church. Um, we're not in full communion with Moravians, but in my opinion, we should. Uh, but, uh, but again, they're also... Um, We'll talk about that next week, about which churches are actually affirming today. The Moravians are also an affirming <coughs> But we're not actually in full community with them. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Like I said, we have a lot of passages to cover today, so we're going to go through them. But after the end of each passage, I am going to open it up for questions. And whatever we don't get to get through today, we'll focus on next week. Uh, but last week, I mentioned that there are five passages in the Bible that explicitly mention uh, some sort of homoerotic act. Um, and I should also, I apologize, I should have said this at the beginning, but I'm going to say it now. A lot of these passages, I need to give the disclaimer, uh, we're going to get into passages about sexual assault, uh, which means that we're also going to be talking about specifically rape and incest, um, because those are a lot of the passages that are connected uh, to homoerotic acts. So we're going to cover the five, we're going to start with the five that seem to speak against the LGBTQ community. Uh, those are highlighted in the red ones um, with uh, the Genesis 18 and 19 and Leviticus 18 and 20. Um, if we have time after we go through all the red ones, uh, we're gonna go through the blue ones, uh, which also mentions some sort of member of the LGBTQ community, but not against them, but actually in many ways of including them in the kingdom of God. And specifically, that passage talks about eunuchs, which will explain the Isaiah passage. And then at the way end, if we have time, which most likely we'll cover next week, is we're going to do the positive passages, pa passages 
that are um, actually in much favor of the LGBTQ community and talk about a lot of same-sex relationships. And so here are the ones from uh, the Old Testament. I'm not going to touch upon Genesis 1 and 2. We did talk about that briefly last week, that there was, yes, the command by God to be fruitful and multiply, but we already talked about there are many ways um, that that isn't relevant today because there are many people who, do, who are not fruitful and multiply the earth, and that is okay too. Uh, so we're not going to talk about Genesis 1 and 2, but we are going to talk about the other ones. In the New Testament, so once again, we're going to talk about the red, which are the explicitly ones that are perceived to be against the LGBTQ community. Uh, that's found in 1 Corinthians and in Romans 1, as well as is in 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to talk about the passage that lifts up eunuchs uh, in Matthew uh, uh, 19. And then, of course, uh, we're going to talk about the genealogy of Jesus, again, if we have time, because there's something very interesting in the genealogy of Jesus. But let's first go through our first passage, which is Genesis 18 and 19. And there are several uh, passages. Uh, this is specifically the story of Sodom and Gomorrah um, that we hear about. So Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Genesis 19, verses 4 through 7. But before the angels lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the lost man, last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And it continues, Lot went out to the door to the men, went out to the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not yet known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which people have used against the LGBTQ community, saying specifically that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of the homosexual act, that the men wanted Lot uh, to give them the men who were visiting Lot and say, let us know them, or uh, to be direct, have sex with them. Um, and what Lot does instead is he offers his two daughters and says, do whatever you want to them, um, as long as you do not have sex uh, with these men who are my guests. Um, so again, you should already be upset by this passage. Because, uh, it is quite terrible. Um, but again, yeah, there is the understanding right away that Sodom and Gomorrah was um, destroyed because of homosexual acts, that these men wanted to have sex with the men who were Lot's guests. But right away, you can already hear in that story that we just read, the greatest act is not the homosexual act, it's actually the rape. Um, right away, Lot offers his daughters and says, do with them whatever you please. Uh, they have not known men yet, but you can have them as long as you don't treat my guests uh, with inhospitality. So given the story's inclusion of Abraham welcoming the three messengers slash angels, it is likely that Sodom is presented as the foil. Extravagant hospitality is the way of Christ. Hospitality is what we are looking for. And it was that they were so against hospitality, uh, which is why it was uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Abuse and hatred of the outsider and the weak is opposed to God. And again, we talked about this briefly last week, but when we think about who are the outsiders today, people on the margins of society, that includes the LGBTQ community, once again, abuse and hatred of the outsider and the weak is opposed to God. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is interpreted in scripture many times after that story. Um, there are several times where they'll lift up why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And again, we use scripture to interpret scripture. So let's look at some of those passages. In Isaiah, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Learn to do good and seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphans. And treat the widows fairly. And then in Ezekiel, this was the gift of Sodom. They were arrogant. They had prosperous ease and excess of food, and yet they did not aid the poor and the needy. 
continues to be in Jeremiah. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of the evildoers so that no one turns from wickedness. All of them have become like Sodom and me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And then in Amos, these are all prophets who are speaking. Uh, you, have, you who oppress the poor and crush the needy, I shall overthrow you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And then even in the Gospels, it references Sodom and Gomorrah. If any town does not show you hospitality, shake the dust off of that town, off of your sandals, and leave. It will be worse for them than it was for Sodom. So in every time after the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in both the prophets as well as in the Gospels, you'll see that the act against Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason it was destroyed, a same-sex intercourse is never mentioned. But rather, it is how uh, the, in, uh, the town people of Sodom and Gomorrah treated um, their guests, and specifically that there was a lack of hospitality, that they did not aid the poor and needy, and that they offered gang rape. Truly, uh, that's what it was. And so this story does actually not focus on same-sex intercourse, uh, but specifically it talks about the inhospitality of strangers manifested as an attempted gang rape. When referenced in other parts of scripture, this is by far the dominant interpretation. So right away, over and over, when they talk about why was the reason Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed according to scripture, it wasn't because of a homosexual act or the want of a homosexual act. It was the lack of hospitality that they had for their guests. But again, we're going quickly through these passages, so there's obviously so much more to it. But any questions about specifically Sodom and Gomorrah? I have a question just for everybody. How many had ever seen that whole passage and that Lot offers his daughters? I think most people don't. They just hear the one thing out of it. They don't see just the horror of the rest of it, as Taylor said. So there's our first passage. So again, Sodom and Gomorrah is not against homosexuality, it's against inhospitality, especially to the point where inhospitality manifests as an attempt at gang rape. Um, so there's your very first passage. So if anyone ever has questions about Sodom and Gomorrah, you all know your response now. <laughs> the next passage is now we're going into the Jewish uh, purity laws. Uh, this is found in Leviticus 18, uh, 18 and 20, and kind of also is a little bit in 20. Uh, or 19. And so Leviticus now, um, these were the laws that were given to the Jewish people as they were uh, building their community uh, within the promised land they had now been delivered. Or um, Actually, yes, yes, yeah, sorry. So 18, uh, we already talked about this passage a little bit last week when he said, why do we care about, or why does the church care so much about it? It's because we have passages like this. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then it is said again in chapter 20, which is every man who sleeps with a man as if a woman, they have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death, their blood guilt is upon them. And so the very first thing you need to know is that it's actually lifted up only once, even though it's said twice. 20 is just a repeating of 18, but it is, actually has crimes, uh, the punishments that go with the crimes. So a lot of the purity laws that were first lifted in 18 are repeated in 20, but this time with their punishable offense. But again, we're talking about Levitical purity laws specifically for the priestly tribe of Levi. Um, and so what is the purpose of this context? So here in Leviticus, the laws were given to Israel when they resided within the promised land. This was a way of separating them from the other nations. And to break these laws is to be expelled from the land. And we're going to continue that by saying that there is a lot of, um, within Leviticus 18, there is a lot of laws uh, and prohibitions against uh, illicit sexual acts with female relatives, menstruating women, adultering, and sacrificing children to Moloch, which was an idol or a god of the underworld. And that part's really important, is that 18 also talks about one of the greatest sins that the early people could do, uh, the a tribe of Levi was to sacrifice their children to the God of the underworld, which is what many of the uh, neighboring tribes around them would do. And so, um, chapter 18 once is concerned with the purity of Israel's procreation and the protection of women against the abuse of the patriarchy and polygamy. 
So they're trying to actually right away, especially for women, is they're trying to protect women with these purity laws. There are many rules that the early uh, the Israelites had to follow, and specifically it was so that the women were protected. Um, and so some of those um, laws that we're going to go into a little bit deeper. Now, lie with, uh, it might be an idiom referring to illicit sexual acts, such as the, those enumerated above, uh, which only refer to women. But in this case, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. You could be including male family members in the list of illicit sexual relations. So once again, it's actually uh, preaching, uh, speaking against incest, uh, specifically uh, family members, male and male. And then at the same time, because of the sacrificing of children to Moloch, which was an idol, a god of the underworld, same-sex intercourse may have been seen as a waste of seed um, and the loss of a life. Uh, so specifically, they're trying to build their nation. And specifically, they're trying to build their nation so that they can uh, be at war with their surrounding nations. Uh, they wanted to be able to protect and defend themselves. They were given the command to procreate. Um, and do so in a faithful way, um, and that they could actually see that same-sex intercourse was the loss of a seed there because they can't procreate in that way, and therefore um, that is why it might have been included, uh, specifically that it also, um, uh, a loss of a seed, um, that that was a way of sacrificing future children. Um, and actually, again, many Christian churches still today believe that you should never waste a man's seed because it is still the sacrifice of a child, um, or again, the waste of a seed. Um, next, Israel's territory was pocketed by numerous Canaanite enclaves, not to speak of more populated nations on its borders. And so again, as I said, it is understandable that Israel was obsessed with increasing its birth weight without endangering harmonious relations within the extended family. So again, really trying to avoid incest, uh, while also really lifting up procreation. Um, again, just so they could be um, really in competition with the neighboring tribes. Uh, but here are other things that are also mentioned in the purity law. So in the same passage that says something about all these illicit sexual acts, again, the ones that were used to protect women, the same um, chapter of the Bible that says a man uh, should not lie with another man, these are other laws that are found within these purity laws. One is, you shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Also, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you put on a garment made of two different types of materials. So you're already hearing laws that we do not follow today at all. You shall, not off, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. When a foreign, foreigner resides within you in your land, you shall not oppress the foreigner. The foreigner who resides with you shall be as the citizen among you. You shall love the foreigner as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Another law uh, in Leviticus, speaking of more purity laws, all who curse father or mother shall be put to death. Having cursed father or mother, their blood is upon them. So I guess if your kid has ever talked back to you. <laughs> you shall inherit their land, and I will give you it to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird or by anything with the ground teams, which I have set apart for you to hold on me. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. Um, so this, uh, this, for example, is why um, there are some practices like you don't pork, uh, because that's an unclean animal. Um, so that, and again, we... I eat pork, I don't know about the rest of you, but I do. Um, so again, it's one of those laws that were given to those people at their time, of the laws that we don't also necessarily follow today. Now the biblical ban on homosexual acts must be considered in the context of all the other foreign forbidden behaviors of Leviticus. Furthermore, it must be kept in mind that these regulations were binding only in Israel, not in other countries. Thus, it is illegal illegitimate to apply these prohibitions on a universal scale. 
And then note that lesbianism, though prevalent and known, was not banned. And so again, um, because it was the waste of a seed, so it was just men that they were focusing on, they didn't care um, if women had relations with women because it wasn't wasting the seed, um, if that was the case. Uh, so again, um, and mind you, uh, Romans, Paul does talk about lesbians, but in the Old Testament, um, although there were same-sex relationships, the lesbians weren't ex um, were totally excluded because it wasn't a waste of a seed. Um, and so sexual behavior and coupling that falls outside of cultural norms is nothing new. And if the OT does present, this is both Genesis and Leviticus, if the Old Testament presents a normative sexual ethic, it does not appear to address our modern questions about gay marriage. But it is primarily concerned about protecting the dignity of less powerful persons and the possibility of procreation for a struggling new nation and ethnicity. So again, both Genesis and Leviticus. Any passages on Leviticus now for the purity laws? Rich? Um, I just wanted to ask about that word abomination. It's a very particular strong word. If there's anything more to say about that, because it seems it's a very kind of more of a So there is, I will, next week at the very beginning of class, I will give the biblical um, definition of it, um, because it actually is a little bit different than what we understand as abomination today. Um, for many of us, though, I will say that my own definition of abomination is that it's, it's the unclean. Um, so they begin when, uh, in Leviticus where it says, I have separated you from peoples, and I have separated the clean from the unclean. Abomination was very closely associated with the word unclean, and today has been used as a weapon against the LGBTQ community, that they must be unclean or an abomination. But next week, at the very beginning of class, I will give the biblical definition of abomination, because I do think it's a good question. Anything else about Leviticus or the passages of the Old Testament? And again, we're going through this very quickly. Um, and again, we could spend weeks. But the church has really obviously wrestled with this for um, hundreds of years. We're now going over to Paul's letters. Um, so the two times that it's mentioned in Paul's letters, uh, which is um, in chronological orders that they believe that the letters were written, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and Romans, uh, that two times Paul specifically lifts it up. Um, and the reason why I'm not including 1 Timothy uh, those are called deutero Paul letters, which means that they were, they're not, they, scholars don't believe that Paul actually wrote them, but rather a follower or student of Paul in his name wrote them. Uh, so I'm not including them in Paul's letters. So first I'm going to say the two letters um, that Paul lifts up. So in the seven undisputed letters of Paul, the topic, topic moderns have also, uh, the topic moderns have also termed homosexuality comes up twice in his third and final letter. 1 Corinthians is specifically a situational letter, so he was specifically addressing something in that letter. And then Romans, though, Paul has some particular circumstances in mind, is more general in the tone of Paro's argument. And so it's a much more interesting uh, letter for our discussion. So I think we're going to talk about Romans next week, because that one, we'll really dive into it. But let's go into 1 Corinthians. Um, so this is the passage. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're going to go into the original Greek here, because that was the new revised standard version that I just read from, and that's the scripture that we use um, in worship here at First Presbyterian. But there are two Greek words uh, that specifically lift up um, the terms soft um, and um, uh, male in bed. So the, the translation today you heard um, of male prostitutes, and then you also heard um, sodomites. But the original Greek, first, malakoi means soft, um, whatever that means, just soft. And then the other word, arsen okotai, I put those in there for me, so I can read um, is a term that was not used anywhere else. This is the first time that the term uh, came up. Um, and it's specifically, it's compounded of two words for male and bed. And specifically, Martin Luther is the one who translated as a violator of boys. Um, uh, and not anything homosexuality. He's specifically looking at children, um, boys. But look at this passage, how it came over um, 
the year. So the very first one, I know some of you are familiar with the King James Version. This was published in 1611. This is the translation of that same passage. Um, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So actually here, you don't hear male sodomites or male prostitutes. You have effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So this was a 1611 translation. And then in the Revised Standard Version, which was published in 1946, again, way before the new Revised Standard Version, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts. So again, not mentioning same sex at all here, but this very specifically using a translation for 1946. Um, and then um, you have the new Revised Standard Version that was published in 1989 is the first time that it was introduced in a same-sex relations. Uh, so again, this is actually a modern um, interpretation of it, not something that has always been found throughout Scripture. So the modern one uh, that we've already heard is, do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, and sodomites. That was published in 1989. So the first time homosexuality was introduced to this passage was when the New Revised Standard Version was published. Um, a lot more recent than what we would think that actually scripture said about it. So the NRSV introduces sodomites, which is an astonishing innovation of the translation tradition. So we went from effeminate, and, or we, sorry, we went from soft, um, and for those who lie with boys, to effeminate, and those who um, are against themselves and mankind. Then we went to sexual perverts. And then most recently with the New Revised Standard, uh, New Revised Standard Translation is when we actually said sodomites or male prostitutes. Um, so even that translation over time really did uh, eventually move towards homosexuality, but it wasn't always about homosexuality. Um, again, these are all translations that are written by humans, just like us, and also humans who have their own bias as well as their own interpretation and their own agendas behind it. So verses one through eight are about members of the church wronging one another and taking each other to civil court. Um, but a believer goes to court against a believer and before believers at that, in fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and believers at that. Do you not know that the wrongdoers were not inherit the kingdom of God? So this actually is against saying that those everyone has done wrong. Why are you against those who you believe have done wrong? We've all done something wrong. And this is actually what uh, Paul is meaning by the context of this letter. Um, all of us, you yourself has done something wrong. Um, and then he lists off why the wrongdoers who were not inherit. The word translated as wrongdoers is the negation of a comment, but it's a difficult word to translate found in Paul's letters. Most modern translators use the word righteousness, rendering the sentence, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Wrongdoers, to show the connection what comes before, those who wrong a neighbor, possibly by defrauding. The sense of the word, which is consistent with the context of the passage, clarifies that Paul refers to those who perpetuate just injustice against each other. So the wrongdoers are those who wrong others. Um, in any way, if you wrong another, those are the ones who are unrighteous, according to Paul. And then Paul then goes on to list groups of people who perpetuate injustice against others. Those who have sex with prostitutes, because it is against the prostitute. Those who worship idols, because it's against God. Those who cheat on their spouse, because it's against their spouse. Those who are soft, against yourself and those who have sex with boys against the young and the weak. And then as it continues, thieves because it's against the victim, greedy because it's against the poor, drunkards against society, revilers against their target, and robbers against the rod. So again, Paul's list of all the wrongdoers, which does include, um, um, as we saw, those who are soft and those who have sex with boys, he's listing a whole list of, here's all the ways that I have sensed that this community has done wrong. Um, and I can actually name these as examples. And who are they? And who are they against? Who have you wronged? 
this is what is clarifying here is in each of those examples, someone has been wronged. Um, someone has been taken advantage of. Someone has been further oppressed. And so like the Old Testament, this passage seems to not, one is this passage seems to be concerned only with men. And if gay men are kept from the kingdom of heaven for being gay, why are lesbians not kept from the kingdom of heaven? And then also the Greeks had separate words for man and humanity. And so this term is used to refer only to males. So once again, we're focusing on males who are abusing their powers um, and not necessarily women because they were part of the powerless. Um, so again, he's really focusing on if you're wronging someone else, you're considered unrighteous. Yes. Why isn't he speaking about pedophiles instead of homosexuality? So actually, that's what I would say is that um, the original translation of this, I actually would say that Paul was speaking against pedophilia, which is yes. And so, and we're going to actually talk about this a little bit later too, although I did not today, um, is that uh, Paul, Paul, one of the things that was common, especially in the Church of Rome or in, in the early Roman society, is Roman men could have sex with their slaves, including their male slaves, who were often young yeah. boys. Yeah. Um, that was actually allowed in society at the time. But Paul is writing against that is that Romans can no longer have sex with their slaves because it is a wrong against their slave, again, who are often young boys. So translations over time eventually said, no, they're talking about homosexuals. They're not. They're talking about men taking advantage of boys, uh, not two men in consenting relationships. Kelly? What did it mean by those who are soft? So again, the, the original translation of that word is just soft. Um, and I don't know beyond that of what it meant of those who are soft. My understanding of it is that all of us are supposed to be strong and courageous in Christ. And so it's an interpretation of weakness in some way. However, translators um, eventually said soft men are effeminate men. Um, those who are not uh, traditional masculine men are effeminate soft men. Um, and eventually that became translated to, once again, homosexuals, that they're soft, effeminate men. But the original term is just soft. That's all it says in that passage. The original Greek word means soft. And I understand it as soft as the opposite of having strength and courage, that those who are considered weak, which is why who is against it when you're considered soft? You're against yourself. If you're not strong in your faith, if you don't have courage to do the right thing, you're actually wrong in yourself. And so that's my understanding of the word soft. And I'm going to... All right, the last thing that I'm going to talk about today, and then I'm going to open it up for a little bit of questions, and then I unfortunately already have to conclude, which is, it is inconceivable that Paul was referring to passive and active partners in male intercourse respectively, thus rejecting the sexual human humiliation imposed by powerful men on subordinates such as slaves. As noted, however, the terms in question probably referred to masturbators and male prostitutes. Certainly the terms Paul uses here were not references, were not references to an ancient, ancient equivalent of modern same-sex gender sexual relations. So as we were talking about just a moment before, is that Paul is specifically talking about how the Romans were allowed to have sex with their male slaves, young boys, and he is speaking against that. Um, he's also speaking against prostitutes, um, so those who have a power over another. But in all equal relationships, whether it is different gender or same gender, those are all an equal power dynamic. These are consenting adults who wish to be in relationship with each other out of love. It is not that one has power over the other, but rather they are equal. And I think if you think about your marriage, whether again you're married to someone of a different gender or the same gender, I hope that you find your marriage as an equal power dynamic between the two of you. And again, that is true no matter what gender you are. Um, again, in the Presbyterian church, we do see women as fully equal to men in leadership um, and in ministry. Therefore, we believe that relationships should be an equal power dynamic between the two people. That also includes same gender relations. So a man and a man, a woman and a woman, whoever they might be, if they are equal in power, if they are consenting adults, if they are in love, 
and that is equal and that is fine. Um, but everything here was all against unequal um, power dynamics and specifically the powerful who is taking advantage and wronging the powerless. Any questions about the first Corinthians one? Any questions so far? So we got through three of the five, and like I said, I was going uh, through that. But does it make sense? That's what I want to make sure that you all walk away, is that if anybody asks you, why is your church affirming? And they might use any of the three that we've mentioned so far as a weapon against, well, this is why you shouldn't be. Do you feel that you can walk away and briefly explain to them, here's my understanding of Genesis um, 19. Here's my understanding of Leviticus 18, and here's my understanding of 1 Corinthians. That is my hope, that you can at least walk away and have that conversation. And then, of course, you can always give me a call, too. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to conclude for today, because uh, we have to get over to worship now. Uh, we're going to continue next week with Romans 6, uh, or Romans 1, and then also 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is very short, um, but we're going to spend some time with Romans. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about some passages that actually celebrate same-sex relations. Um, although there are never in Scripture there are no same-sex relations that are sexual in nature, there are plenty of same-sex relationships that are rooted in love. Um, although we shouldn't, we shouldn't just automatically assume that they weren't in sexual relationships, because you'll see just how deeply these people truly are in love with one another. Um, specifically talking about David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, or even Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about a little bit about Matthew's, or Jesus' understandings of eunuchs, who fell outside of the gender binary even all those years ago. Um, these are people who were considered uh, neither male nor female, but there are biblical eunuchs. We'll talk about them. And then the last thing that we're going to talk about next week, which is the really, really good stuff, is what does allyship look like today, uh, both within the church as well as the surrounding community. So I really hope that you will be here for next week. That's the real good stuff. <laughs> yeah, because it's all about how we can be better allies and friends to the LGBTQ community, especially as a church community. So once again, thank you to all of you.